Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, he, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray together. Father, we come into this place every week and we hear your word. God, we have the scriptures at our fingertips, Lord, in different English translations and on our phones and on the computer and endless resources to be exposed to your word and to encounter you. And yet, Lord, I am finding myself so desperate, not just for divine encounters, God, but to be transformed by them. And God, you know my fear this week, even as I've prepared this fear of being exposed to you continually without responding to you and therefore developing a heart that is desensitized to you. And so, God, I pray for us today that we would not only encounter you, but that you would lead us by your spirit to respond, to not just fill our minds with information, but to be transformed by the power of your spirit as we walk in obedience and faith to your scriptures and to what you've called us to. God, that requires us to be very vulnerable right now because all sorts of us have had all kinds of experiences this week and will walk into any number of experiences next week 
And so God, I even preemptively pray for those who are afraid of what you might call them to today. I pray that you would comfort us. God, I pray that you would remind us that you do not require anything of us that you have not already given us in your son. May we encounter that today. May we encounter the gospel. May we encounter not just bread, but Jesus Christ, the bread of life himself. We pray it in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't, I don't know about you. Um, there seems to be some people from the moment they're born, they just crave or can at least handle spicy foods. That was not me. And it, like who here likes spicy foods? I'm actually going to ask you guys to start responding. Okay. About 50% of you are like, I dig spicy foods. As a kid, I never quite understood why somebody wanted to be in pain while they ate. Like you watch people eating spicy food and they're sweating and their skin is turning a different color and like anyone get the nose run, right? Like that's a thing that happens. And so I never, I never ate spicy food. I hated it. But after time, for some reason, I started like, like sneaking cayenne pepper into things. And I noticed this the other day, I was making a pot of beans and I was like, okay, it calls for like a teaspoon. How about two tablespoons? Like that ought to work. Cayenne pepper, it's got some heat, right? So now I'm like sneaking cayenne pepper into the things my my wife makes and I am putting horseradish on my sandwiches and asking for more wasabi than most sushi joints are really willing to give. And I crave, I love spicy foods. And now my food has to be so hot in order for me to even get like this kick that my family can't eat it. Like it's too hot for them. And so the human body has this incredible ability to desensitize itself to offensive stimuli, not just offensive ones, even pleasant Ones. We, can, we can desensitize ourselves after overexposure. And so it's not just these physical experiences. It's not just, you know, tastes and smells and even physical pain. But we can also uh, numb our consciences through desensitization, through being exposed to the fear or the guilt or the sorrow that a particular activity in our life brings without responding to it. And our consciences become seared. And so now maybe there's something in your life that the first time it happened, you were like, oh my goodness, this can never happen again. And then it happened again. And you're like, oh gosh, why do I keep doing this? And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And now it's just a regular part of your life and you feel nothing. You've been desensitized. You've been numbed. We can become so accustomed to the presence of something that we stop feeling its, its power. We stopped feeling it, its poignancy. We stop feeling. And worst of all, we can become numb. We can become desensitized to the presence and power of God himself in our lives and in our community. And so Reality Carpenteria, we are in a very unique season as a church. We are in Mark chapter 8. We're about halfway through Mark's gospel. And together, we have encountered Jesus in some beautiful ways. 
We've seen him do incredible things. We've seen him move in power and transform and heal and cast out demons and teach. And we've seen him in scripture bring the kingdom of God to those around them and be gracious and merciful and compassionate. And we've experienced that in our hearts. We have experienced him move and speak to us and transform us and give us these little nuggets of of gold and, and gospel that transform our lives from the inside out as we respond to him. We've seen it work in our community. We've seen the gospel move. We've seen people respond to one another in love and compassion. And we've seen a family born. We've seen some incredibly beautiful, wonderful things together. We've seen Jesus doing incredible things, but if we allow ourselves to be familiar with these things and yet do not respond to these things, then we actually are in danger of our very hearts being desensitized to what God wants to do. When we allow God to transform our circumstances, without allowing him to transform our hearts, we actually numb ourselves to him. We numb ourselves to his work. And in this passage, Jesus addresses the problem of a desensitized heart. And in the end, what we will see is that he is the only one that can make our hearts feel again. Maybe you are here today and you are remembering when you first met Jesus or maybe you are remembering when you first started attending church or you are remembering a season in your life when God was working in dramatic ways and and you remember those feelings but it's been a long time since you have felt that. You need to know that Jesus wants you to feel Jesus wants you to encounter him. Jesus wants you to respond to him. He wants to transform you. And so do not leave this place without responding to his call. He can make you feel again. Before we jump into this problem of the desensitized heart, we have some background that we need to do. See, Jesus in our passage, he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. And if you've been around for the last several weeks, you're probably thinking to yourself, that sounds awfully familiar to another time when Jesus had some bread and some fish and he fed 5,000 people. And so what's, what's going on, right? This is very similar to a previous feeding miracle that we studied. So similar are they that many scholars believe that Mark is actually passing down two separate traditions of the same event. Those scholars are wrong because there are enough differences between the two accounts that are actually very important and some of them kind of fun. First of all is the location. So the location of the first miracle took place in Galilee. The location of this miracle takes place in the Decapolis. And so the Decapolis was a primary, primarily Gentile region where Galilee is, is or in, in Capernaum, that area is a primary, primarily Jewish region. Uh, uh, population. And so what Jesus is doing in giving the same miracle to a different group of people is saying what we learned last week, that the messianic blessing is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Praise God, hallelujah, for all of us who do not come from Jewish uh, uh, roots, that we are too welcomed into the kingdom of God. Amen. You should be clapping. You're in. 
because of Jesus. So the gospel blessing, the messianic blessing has now come to the Gentiles. And so there's other ways that we see this in this text as well. Part of it is in the number of baskets left over, right? 12 is a very Jewish number. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when there's 12 baskets left over, that's an indication that the messianic blessing is abundant, overly abundant for all of God's people, for all of Israel. But here we have seven baskets full. And so seven is a number throughout scripture that represents completion because God rested on the seventh day when he completed his work of creation. And so this is a sign that the messianic blessing is not just abundant for Israel, but it's abundant for all of creation. It's abundant for all of God's people. And so again, this feeding has very important uh, Gentile salvific undertones. Last thing, and I just thought this was fun this week. There's actually two words for baskets that show up in this passage. I didn't realize this. The first feeding miracle, the word for basket, is a very specific basket that was like a small hand basket that would be used to carry somebody's lunch in. The basket used in this miracle is actually a massive basket that shows up elsewhere in the book of Acts when they're trying to help Paul escape persecution from Damascus. Do you remember this? They're trying to kill him. So they lower him over a wall in a basket. The seven baskets used to collect the broken pieces in this feeding of the 4,000 could hold a full grown man. So even though there are fewer baskets, there's more bread. I've often read this and gone, oh, is Jesus like losing his power? He did 12 baskets full last time. Is what's going on now only seven baskets full? No, there's fewer baskets, but there is more bread. And so Jesus, the, the blessing that Jesus Messiah brings is this super abundant blessing that is far greater than we could ever ask for or imagine that the abundance of Jesus has come, the abundance of the kingdom of God, the abundance of the messianic banquet, this, this, this thing alluded to in the Old Testament that when, 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 when God comes, that all peoples would gather and worship him and feast together. All of this points to the abundance of Jesus overflowing to bless the whole world. These differences are meaningful. Jesus didn't only come for the Jews. He came first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles, just like we learned last week. But the Gentiles don't get the leftovers. They get a super abundance along with anyone who receives through faith. But these differences between the feeding miracles, although they might be fun, they might be, oh, that's interesting. Okay, they are two different things. They don't answer the biggest question in the text. See, the biggest question in this text is why on earth in the shortest gospel would Mark include two very similar miracles? Mark doesn't include two of anything in his gospel. He doesn't have the time right? We've been told in the gospel of John that Jesus did so many things 
that all of the, the, the world couldn't hold all of the books that would be written about him. We know that Jesus did other things through Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and John's gospel that are not recorded in Mark's gospel. Mark, why are you recording two of the very similar events when you could be giving us a different facet of Jesus' identity, a different angle in his work to see his power move in a different way? Why on earth? Do you include the same or the similar miracle twice? Well, it's been said that repetition is the mother of learning. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples something. And Mark wants us to learn something. By repeating a similar story, we are supposed to learn that it's not about the miracle. It's not about the bread, The reason Jesus was doing this, though he had compassion on them, though he wanted to feed them, though food is important, the thing that Jesus is doing for the crowd, he wants his disciples to learn from. It's not about the bread. It's not about the miracle. It's about our hearts and how they respond to Jesus. See, it's incredibly, uh, there's an incredible danger for those exposed to the repeated and abundant blessings and glories of God if we do not receive them by faith. What we see with our eyes and what we hear with our ears will only be like white noise if we do not respond to it by faith. It becomes like static on an old TV screen. Just, just indiscernible. We become numb to it. We run the risk of being desensitized. And this is the problem both with the Pharisees and the disciples in this passage. The Pharisees come to argue with Jesus and demand from him a sign from heaven. See, they're not asking for a miracle. The Pharisees are aware of Jesus' miracles. They, they, they saw his miracles. They saw him casting out demons. They acknowledged his power and just said, yeah, 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 we get it, Jesus. Your power comes from Satan, not from God. So they, they know what Jesus is capable of. They just have accused it of coming from an alternative source. And so they're not asking Jesus to just do another miracle. They're asking for something undeniable. A sign is different than a miracle. They're saying, prove once and for all that you are who you say you are. Prove once and for all. Give us a sign from God, not just these other things that you are doing. See, they never deny his power. They are denying the source of his power. And so they want an undeniable proof of his identity. And so his miraculous provision of bread in the wilderness twice should have been a sign to them. Because one of the things the Pharisees and the Jewish people were waiting for was a prophet like Moses. And so when they saw miraculous bread feeding people in a desert place, they should have been reminded of the manna that God gave the Israelites when they were wandering through the desert. Jesus does it twice. That is a sign of his identity. And to the desensitized heart, it's never enough. See, to those who are being desensitized to God's activity, even when we see it, it's not enough to convince us. We want something more. And so what Jesus does is never enough for the Pharisees. 
His entire ministry has been a sign of his messianic identity and they've hardened his heart to them. This is why Jesus says no sign will be given this generation. He's going to perform other miracles. He is going to do other things that actually are a sign of who he is. When he dies, he's going to rise from the dead three days later. That is going to be a sign of his identity. But Jesus says no sign is going to be given this generation because this generation has hardened his hearts and hardened their hearts. And even if they receive a sign, they will not believe it. It will not be enough. Many of us are asking God to, to, to prove himself to us. Many of us are asking God to, to, to give me a sign once and for all that, I'm, that, I'm, that, I, that this is true, that, that I'm believing what, what you've done, that you actually came and you lived and you died and you rose from the dead and, and, and we're potentially asking for a sign. But only you can know by the spirit of God in you, whether or not your request for a sign is coming from a place of never allowing Jesus to be enough already. Has what Jesus has done for you, is it enough? Or do we want something more and different and greater, something new and shiny? Or is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that forgives your sins and calls you to a new life Are we going to let it be enough? The Pharisees say it's never enough because they are desensitized to what is happening. And unfortunately, the same problem is evident in the disciples. We see the same issue in the disciples. So Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is a small leftover lump of dough with yeast in it from the previous batch that is then worked into a new batch of bread so that the leaven, the the, the yeast is distributed through that new batch of bread so that it can rise. And throughout the history of God's people, leaven has often been used as an analogy as a, as, a, as a metaphor for sin, that a little bit of sin will eventually work its way through our whole lives, will work its way through our thought patterns, will work its way through our desires and even through our communities, that sin is like leaven and it will eventually pervade the whole lump of dough. It will eventually pervade the entire community of God's people. And so Jesus comes to them and says, identifies that there is something that the disciples are risking being exposed to or being influenced by that would eventually work its way through their entire community and into their entire lives. And so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. See, the disciples are in the same, uh, having a similar experience to the Pharisees. See, the, the Pharisees saw the incredible things done by Jesus and it was never enough. They wanted more. But the disciples saw even more incredible things, right? The Pharisees, they come into the story occasionally. The disciples are following Jesus. They're seeing everything that he's doing. So they see even more works. They see even greater works. They, they were even sent out to the surrounding regions with the authority of Jesus himself. They preached the gospel. They cast out demons. They healed people. Talk about being exposed to the ministry of Jesus. They're sitting here handing out miracle bread. By their hands, they're seeing what God is doing. They have access to Jesus that the Pharisees never had. 
And so they're being exposed to the beauty and the power and the, and the glory of God. But at the end of the day, they also are in danger of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. They too were in danger of being numb and hard-hearted, desensitized to Jesus. They were even carrying out God's activity and yet we're numb. And how many of us have found ourselves in seasons, and this isn't to shame anyone, I'm there all the time, where we are invited into God's work, we are invited into God's ministry, and yet we feel so distant from it. Our hearts become desensitized due to overexposure uh, without responding, without receiving, without, without being transformed by it. We're at risk of, of being desensitized. It's a very dangerous place to be. So close to power and, and beauty, and yet it's business as usual. And I remember hearing very recently a story of somebody giving their life to Jesus for the first time. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's really cool. And I walked away and I was like, wait, really cool? Like a man was raised from the dead in the spiritual realm. And oh, that's pretty cool. I was like, what is, what's, what is wrong with me? That is, if you are here and you know Jesus, your salvation is a miracle. You deserved to die. And now Jesus is giving you eternal life just because he loves you. That's amazing. Forgive us, God, for every time we recognize his mercies are new every morning and my feet hit the floor and I don't like explode in gratitude because he's not sick of me yet. He's gonna give me another day. That's amazing. It's a very dangerous place to be, to be so close to God and yet going through the motions. If we're in church consistently and we are serving consistently and reading our Bibles, but we're not responding to God, then we are at risk of developing this desensitized heart. And that is a huge problem. So how can we be aware and how can we prevent it from happening to us? Well, I want to give us three causes of a desensitized heart. And the first is fear. Fear is the common denominator between the Pharisees and Herod. You see, they were afraid that if Jesus were allowed to continue in his ministry, that they would lose their status, that they would lose their power, they would lose their influence and their importance. Think about it. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were the, they were the righteous ones. They were the ones leading Israel by example. But if Messiah is come, who, who wrote the law and fulfilled it on our behalf, the Pharisees are pointless. They knew that. There's no need for a a, a puppet king in Rome's pocket like King Herod was if the king of the universe is present with us on earth and in our hearts. Herod knows that if this is the Jewish Messiah, if this is the savior of the world, not only is Rome in trouble, I'm in trouble. See, fear is the common denominator. Fear is what links the leaven to both the Pharisees and to Herod. And so self-preservation and fear can also prevent us from responding to Jesus in faith. What is God going to require of me? What is he going to ask of me? Where is he going to call me to go? What are people going to think of me? I've told this story before, but it's, it continues to be 
the perfect example in my mind of an appropriate response to the cost of discipleship. I was having a conversation with one of my sons uh, a few years ago, and we were talking about um, the, the uh, giving our lives to Jesus and what that means. And, and I, said, I said, if I have a toy and I give you that toy, right? If, if, if it's my toy, I can do whatever I want with it. And if I give it to you, so it's your toy, what does that mean? And he said, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, absolutely. And I said, right now, our lives, our lives, when, when, we're, when we're born, when we're living, you know, apart from Jesus, our lives belong to us. And what does that mean? He says, it means I can, I can do whatever I want with my life. I said, absolutely. I said, but Jesus calls us to give our lives to him. What does that mean? And he said, it means he can ask me to do anything. And I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, scared. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't know what he'll ask of me. Adults, from the mouth of babes, this can be terrifying because we truly don't know what God will ask of us. That is the appropriate response. That is the the cost of discipleship, the, the weight of responsibility in that decision to give your life to Jesus. And if we are honest, it can be terrifying because we don't know what he's going to ask of us. But here's the kicker. We do know what he was willing to give. We do know what Jesus was willing to give, that Jesus does not require anything of us that he hasn't already given to us himself that he asks us to cast our sinful, weak life upon the cross so that he can give us his powerful, immortal, loving, glorious, beautiful life. He was willing to lay his life down so we can give ours to him. And so fear and self-preservation can hinder us from responding to the gospel in faith and repentance because we don't know what he is going to ask. And so if we live in that fear, continue to associate ourselves with with Jesus through coming to church and and reading the Bible and, and, and worship and prayer meetings and all of these good things, beautiful, wonderful, important things, but yet all the while we're standing outside We're just standing outside the fire. We're never actually getting close, never actually submitting ourselves to him. Then even though we're doing the right things, we run the risk of becoming numb to what God is doing. Fear is a faith killer. And fear can cause us to remain distant and desensitize our hearts. But maybe your problem isn't fear. Maybe there's indecision comes from, from something else. Maybe uh, it, it, whatever it is, if we continue to resist responding to these divine encounters, it leads us to another cause of the desensitized heart, which is that casual familiarity, right? The reason that fear is, is, is a factor in desensitizing our hearts is because it, it, it brings us into familiarity without actually a response. And so it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. We get so used to something and that we want something more. We want something different. We want something new and shiny. And so Jesus is no longer the new and shiny toy of the disciples. He, he, they're, 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 it's business as usual, nothing to see here. 
They're so familiar with him that when they're, even when they're in the wilderness again, in a desert place again, and Jesus says, I have compassion on these people. I'd kind of like to feed them. They go, where are we going to get bread? They're so numb to what he's doing that it's not sticking with them. It's not actually remaining in their hearts. They're like, they're still confused. They don't know what's happening. And so they're so familiar following the Messiah, experiencing even heaven, breaking through into earth and transforming lives. And to them, it's just business as usual. See, God's activity in our lives can be like that spicy food, right? Almost too hot to handle at first, but then bland after we've been experiencing it all day, every day. And so often we, when we receive the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel, we can oftentimes think that we actually need something more. Like we need to go deeper. We, we, we need something different. Okay, I've got the gospel. I've got Jesus. Now what's next? Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I know that he's died for my sins. I've applied that and, and I'm a Christian now. I, I, I worship Jesus now. And, and, and so now what's, what's next? And we can equate knowledge of the Bible and, and theology with Christian maturity. They're like, okay, I'm a Christian now. Now I need to learn everything in the Bible. How intimidating is that, right? There's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. And so, okay, now I, 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 need to, I need to learn more. I need something new. Okay, that's a good truth for this week. Now I need something more. And, and, and yet we, guys, our, our knowledge of the Bible is, is, is a tool for Christian maturity, but knowledge of the Bible is not Christian maturity. Just look at the pastors and the theologians in the world who are failing morally and walking away from the faith. If biblical knowledge equated to Christian maturity, that wouldn't happen. There's something different. There's something else that we are missing out on. We can't get to the point where we say, I get the gospel, but now I want to go deeper. I want to go into deep theology. Look, I love theology. I will sit down. You want to talk theology? We'll grab coffee. We'll shoot me an email. We will, we will talk till the end of days about the theology of the Bible and the beauty and the scriptures and all of these things that we can learn. But the reason we love theology is because we love the Bible. And the reason we love the Bible is because we love Jesus. And the reason we love Jesus is because he died for us and cleansed us from my sin and the sin that has been committed against me. The, the reason we study theology is because our theology gives us a a new view of the gospel. It helps us see it from a different angle in different colors with different textures and it helps us apply it to different areas of our life. But your understanding of theology does not equate to your maturity. In fact, being so exposed to to the deep truths of God's word and yet never responding to God results in a desensitized heart. We need to be studying the scriptures. We absolutely must be in God's word day in and day out. But if it doesn't actually lead us to responding to Jesus himself, then it's just bread. It's a good thing, but it's not about the bread. It's about Jesus. It's about the one who is multiplying the loaves and the fishes and feeding the multitudes. Maturity comes when we continually live to see, uh, continually seek to live in light of the gospel. And so we study 
and we learn and we apply the gospel continually to our lives, the good news of Jesus Christ. And personally, I think this is one of the biggest threats to individual Christians today. It's a threat to the church in the West, and it's a threat potentially to reality carpenteria because over-familiarity with truth without actively applying it will cause us to forget the power and the grace and the mercies of God in our lives and in the church. And so the calloused, desensitized heart not only grows familiar with God's activity, but it's also in danger of forgetting what God has done. And so this, this third cause of a desensitized heart is forgetfulness. D.A. Carson said that the first generation believes the gospel The next generation assumes the gospel, familiarity with the gospel, and the third generation loses the gospel. And this isn't just true generationally, but we see this trajectory in our own lives, that we receive the gospel with gladness, but then we assume it. And if we're not constantly being brought back into an encounter with God through the good news of Jesus Christ, we begin to assume it, we become familiar with it, and then we forget it. This doesn't mean that we actually strike it from our memories, and have no recollection of it, and it's the experiences we've had with Jesus, but we rationalize them. We can explain them away so that they no longer have the same impact on our stories and and on our lives. And so we, we become familiar. Maybe you've had an experience like this, where you've seen something that at one time was undeniable, and then years later it's like, man, there's gotta be an explanation. I do that. Rationalizing desensitizing, growing distant forgetfulness. So then what do we do? How do we combat the fear? How do we avoid the the casual familiarity that produces forgetfulness? We we certainly don't want to become unfamiliar with God, right? How How do we strike that balance? What do we do to cure the desensitized heart? Well, the cure for the desensitized heart is to feast on Jesus, not just the bread, but on the one that provides it. When everyone is distracted by the bread, the disciples had an opportunity to feast in him, to to, to fully receive him and experience him and what he was doing and to take it all in and savor every moment. And so Jesus on the boat, he says, he says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not understand? Having eyes do you not see and ears do you not hear? Are your hearts hard? And he asks them all these questions. But then he says, do you not remember? He calls them to remember. Not remember the bread, but to remember what Jesus has done, who Jesus is. And the disciples are so nearsighted that they don't understand what Jesus is doing or who he is. And so Jesus calls them to remember. Throughout the scriptures, God's people are consistently called to remember. In fact, God built their entire annual calendar around a cycle of remembrance. They, so badly did God want them to remember their, their wanderings in the wilderness that every year during the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone went and built a tent outside of the city and slept in it just to remember what it was like to be in the wilderness. He wanted them to remember. He built an entire, uh, an entire system of remembrance around a meal the Passover meal, to remind them that not their ancestors, but that they were slaves in Egypt. 
That, that the redemption that God brought to them, even though it was generations prior, applies to them and they need to remember. And so consistently throughout scripture, we are called to remember the work of God, to remember the glory of God, to remember the redemption of God, to retell these stories, to retell our stories, to never grow familiar with sharing how we came to know Jesus or what he has done in our lives, to never cease uh, uh, to, to never grow tired of celebrating what he's been doing, to, to remember our history as a church, to remember our identity as sons and daughters of God. They were to remember that these moments of their history were not isolated to the past. And your uh, experiences with God are not isolated to the past, but they make you who you are today. Remember Church, remember, brothers and sisters, remember what God has done for you. If you want to experience that sensitivity in that numb heart again, remember what Jesus has done. And throughout the New Testament, believers are called to remember. Listen to this. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says, Now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He's talking to believers, brethren, brothers and sisters. I would remind you Christians of the gospel that has been preached to you, in which you stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. That's an interesting verse. To, that's an interesting thing to say to believers, right? You are being saved. Right? If you're a believer, haven't you already been saved? Well, in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in, in past, present, and future tenses. So the moment you believed... You were saved, past tense, done deal. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. That, the theological term for that is justification. You have been justified. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. But as we continue to respond to the gospel, we are being saved from the power of sin. This is what Paul's talking about here. You are being saved by being reminded of the gospel you are being transformed. The theological term for this is sanctification. You are being made sanctified. You are being made holy. But one day, when Christ returns or calls you home, you will be saved from the presence of sin. Amen. <laughs> from the presence of sin. You have been saved from its penalty. You are being saved from its power. You will be saved from its very presence. And the way we do this is by remembering, being reminded of what Jesus has done, remembering the gospel, remembering what he has accomplished. What we need as believers is not new knowledge. What you need as a believer is not something new, some deeper truths. It's not something new at all. What believers need is to be reminded of what was of old, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
That while we were still rebelling against him, he died for you. And so Jesus in the text asks asks his disciples, do you not remember? Have you already forgotten? Do you not remember what I did with the loaves? Do you still not understand that it's not about the bread? It's about me. It's about what I have done for you. Church, if you are here and and, and you you are fearful of what the call of God may mean for your life, what you need is to remember. You need to remember what he has done for you and know and believe that he will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever craziness he calls you into, he will be with you. You need to remember that he does not ask anything of you that he himself has not already given by grace. If you are here today and you are finding that in your familiarity with the scriptures, they are beginning to lose its, their impact. You have familiarity with the truths of God and it's old hat. It's business as usual. Yep, just another sermon. Yep, just another worship gathering. If you're serving and you're, just, you're, you're, you're going through the motions, what you need is to remember You don't need to go do something crazy. Jesus did something for you. You need to remember what that is and respond to it. We need to remember if we're here and we've forgotten. Maybe maybe you've walked away from the faith and you're here because God is calling you to remember. He wants you to remember what he is doing, who he is and who he has made you to be. He is calling us today to remember to remember his promises, to remember what he's done because we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit as we respond to the gospel. And once we have remembered, we don't just move on with our day. That just, again, creates familiarity without formation and leads to desensitization that we are trying to avoid. Remembering what we have experienced is powerful, but we do not learn from our experiences unless we reflect on our experiences. Reflection is more than remembering. Reflection is seeking understanding. Reflection is, is seeking to, to comprehend and grasp the truths of it and, and, and roll it around in our minds and, and understand how it applies to us and, 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 and ask ourselves of what, what kind of change might God be calling me to, to make in my life. Reflecting is considering all of the angles and all of the possibilities. We can't just thoughtlessly sail through life and, and faith and expect to learn and grow. We need to reflect on these things. It's like savoring something delicious. The difference between remembering is like, oh, I remember steak. And then reflecting is actually like eating it and enjoying it or, or you know, an impossible burger for those of you vegetarians and vegans. I can't remember something I've never had. I've heard it's delicious. We need to remember and then, and then reflect. And sometimes we need to reflect not just on the glories of God, Sometimes we need to reflect on our painful experiences and that's hard to do. But even in difficulty, God is, is, is working wonders by the power of his gospel, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. As we reflect on these things, he can transform us. It's not pleasant, but oftentimes it chips away the hard heartedness that allows us to feel again. Sometimes we experience tragedy and we want to push it away 
but it's an opportunity to, to learn from God and to receive him and respond to him. And most importantly, we need to reflect on the truths of Christ. We need to reflect on the cross and what he's done and reflect on how it applies to every aspect of our lives. You don't, you don't need a, a, a verse to finally know, oh, God is calling me to do this thing. You need to know that Jesus sacrificed his entire life, that he left his throne in heaven, came to earth as a humble, impoverished baby, raised by a young girl, experienced scorn because the entire world thought he was an illegitimate child because his, mar- his mother gave birth to him apart from being married. He was, he was, he was the, the, the incarnation of God in, in, in human form was this ultimate, what's been called the, the great condescension, that he came down to us, that he left his throne and, and entered into humility. You, you want to be concerned about what God might call you to to, to lose or or to give up or to sacrifice. He had everything and he gave everything up. And then he lived an obedient and and faithful life, obedient to the point of death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. So not only living this humble life, but but dying the most most horrific death imaginable. And, And if that wasn't enough, while he was on the cross, the full weight of our sin was put upon his shoulders So even when he died, his father turned his face from him. He lost everything. He lost everything. And he asks us to follow. Yes, there is a cross to bear, but he does not ask us of anything that he has not given us abundantly more. And so we reflect on how it applies to all of our lives. We reflect on how it applies to our worship, our families, our relationships, our sinful actions, our our fears, our temptations, all of these things. It applies to everything. The gospel impacts every aspect of the Christian life. But we don't naturally recognize it without reflecting on it, meditating on it, ruminating on the beauty and the power of what God has done. And if we want to cure the desensitized heart, we need to not only remember and reflect, but it demands a response. We must respond. We must not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. If we only remember and reflect, but do not put into practice what we have received and take those necessary steps to trust God in faith and repent of sin and and, and worship Jesus, then it's mere familiarity once more. We're just being exposed to it, never being changed by it. But if we respond, if we take action, If because of what Jesus has done for me, I not only know it and receive it and respond to it and it changes the way that I live, we put it into practice, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We become like him. We become mature in Christ. We become sensitive to the Spirit of God. We become sensitive to God and to one another. Our hearts become soft and sensitive to the community and the the non-believers around us and those who are, are struggling to make ends meet and those who are most vulnerable in our culture we become sensitive to to those that God loves because we have grappled with God's love for us. When we respond to God, those areas of our hearts that have grown hard and numb begin to soften so that they can feel again. And so the Christian life, faith and repentance is not something that you did when you first came to faith and now you never have to do it again. But we continue to respond to the gospel. We continue to respond to to Jesus in faith and repentance. 
right? If we, if we say that we have faith, but we're not living transformed lives, then we are trusting in Jesus as a savior, but not as a king. And if we are living perfectly obedient lives to the letter of the law, but not trusting in his grace and, 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 and putting our faith in his ability to forgive us of our sins, then we, we might want to follow Jesus as Lord, but we're, we're still trying to be our own saviors. We've rejected him as, as a savior. And so in our lives, we find ourselves not only doing bad things, but we find ourselves believing wrong things. And so repentance is not just, I need to stop doing this and turn from that and turn toward Jesus. It certainly includes that, but it's digging down underneath that sin and finding the, the sinful, uh, uh, the, the false beliefs that we are clinging to that, that manifest themselves in, in these different sins. If you believe that God doesn't have your best interest in mind and that God is not a good provider, that he's not a good father, that he's not a protector, then you have every right to respond by trying to provide for yourself, protect yourself, keep other people at arm's length. You have every right to fight for what's yours, to be greedy, to try to build a life for yourself because you believe something wrong about God. You might not say that intellectually, but deep down in your heart, you're, you're not, we're not trusting God to provide for us. And so we've got to make our own way. And so repentance is not just, okay, don't be greedy. I'm not gonna cheat on my taxes this year. I'm going to be not greedy. No, it's recognizing that, oh gosh, I'm believing this lie about God. And so I'm actually, I'm actually believing that, that God's not a provider, that he doesn't love me, that he doesn't care for me. And so I'm turning from that false belief and I'm turning to the true belief that Jesus loves me, that he provides for me, that he has my best interest in mind, that he's given me everything, that, that, he, that he has given his, his own riches so that I could be a co-heir with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies and have everything that I need and be protected for by him and, and he'll never leave leave me or forsake me. And so not only does that kind of belief produce a life that's not greedy, but it produces a life that's generous. If I have everything because God has lavished upon me his riches, then why do I need to hold things with closed fists? See, the gospel applies to everything and, and, and it transforms every aspect of our life, not by saying, okay, I have the gospel. Now I, I know that I'm saved. Now I just need to live in obedience until the day that I die. No, it's I need to apply the gospel of God to my heart, every aspect of my life to motivate transformation, to, to change me so that I can respond and, and become transformed by his spirit. The Christian life is a continual life of faith, putting our trust in who God actually is and repentance, turning away from false beliefs and believing what's true. Because if you believe something that's wrong about God, you don't actually believe in God. You believe in a false God. So many people walking around saying, I don't believe in God. Tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. There's one God and he is told to us, given to us in scripture. And there's one savior the name by which everyone must be saved, Jesus Christ. And there is one spirit that unites us to him and, and gives us life in Christ and unites us as brothers and sisters. There's one. And people are like, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe in a God that this, that, or the other thing. I, I might not believe in him either, but I believe in this God, the one that the scriptures tell us about. And so we do this every Sunday. We remember, we reflect, we respond See, the second set of worship that we have here at Reality Carpinteria, it's not the outro. It's not, it's not the, the song that rolls during the credits that you can like leave if you want to. 
This is an active time of response to reflect and respond to what we have been reminded of. We remember God's faithfulness. We remember his power in our lives and we respond in worship. We respond in communion. We respond in prayer, repentance, faith, trust, and love. We respond to him. And so I'm gonna call us in a moment to respond to these things today. Don't leave here without responding. Don't leave here without putting your faith in Christ for what he has revealed to you today. But also don't respond today and then leave it in the past. Respond tomorrow at the office. Respond, respond tomorrow at breakfast with your children. Respond throughout the week. Continue to respond to these things. Don't just leave it in the past and forget about them, but continue to carry the gospel ever before you, responding to it and being transformed by it. Respond to the truths throughout your day and throughout your lives, because when you respond to them, the power of the Spirit is working in you and through you. Your life is transformed. Your heart is sensitized to God. God and to those around you and those in your life will begin to see glimpses of the kingdom of God bursting forth and transforming the world. This is how we fight against the desensitized heart. We simply receive the abundance of Jesus and respond to him in faith. And so let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for sending your son God, we thank you that though we were far off, you sacrificed your own son who you love so that we could be brought near. And God, I confess that that oftentimes, Lord, my heart is, is, is numb to these things that we talk about continually. And I confess that there are times when I've not responded, when I've just been content with learning something new or uh, or sharing, sharing something without taking it to heart. But God, we want to take it to heart today. Lord, we want to not just hear your word, but we want to respond to it. We want to remember your faithfulness. God, we want to reflect and, and see it in all of its beauty. And God, we want to respond and be transformed by you as we live lives of faith and repentance. And God, we want so much to see your glory fill our minds, our hearts, our churches, this world, Lord. We long for you. We're desperate for you. God, I pray that this time of response would be led by you, that the Spirit of God would lead us in this time. And Lord, if there's anything that we, uh, um, that we are keeping at arm's length because we don't want to deal with it today or we're afraid of of what it would mean to to, to respond to you in this way. God, I pray that this time our our response would be to just sit with you in it and, and remember what you have done for us and that you've not called us to anything that you will not also empower us to do. Lord, we love you, and and we do, God. We, We give you our lives as best as we know how because we trust you with them. Lord, lead us and glorify yourself in us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.